Welcome to Green Tea, sustainable stories from Bowdoin campus and beyond. A production of the Bowdoin Sustainability Office with your hosts, Marie Caspard and Diego Velasquez. Telling stories about sustainability from the perspective of faculty, staff, students, and Brunswick community members. Today, we have the privilege of speaking with Laura Henry, professor of government at Bowdoin College. She teaches courses on contemporary Russian politics, Eastern Europe, the European Union, environmental politics, and social movements in civil society. Her research investigates Russia's post-Soviet transformation and state-society relations across the former Soviet Union, in addition to environmental politics. Professor, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. I'm so happy to be here. <laughs> um, could we start a bit with your research, um, talking a bit where you focus from corporate sustainability to environmental protection in Russia um, and all the way to natural resource extraction policy? Um, just give us like a general overview of them. We can sure. figure out where we want to go. Watch out. I can talk about my research forever. <laughs> so just stop me. Um, yeah. So I got started in my research um, actually just after undergrad because I had a Watson fellowship. And the Soviet Union had collapsed a couple of years earlier. And I wanted to live in the former republics of the Soviet Union and see how people organize themselves after the end of an authoritarian regime. So what issues did they care about? What associations did they form? What clubs did they form? And so I spent a year um, living mostly in Russia and Ukraine and also the Baltic states. And what I decided to do is because I'm passionate about environmental issues, I decided to narrow my focus and look at environmental organizations. So I spent a year volunteering, um, you know, attending lectures, planting trees, picking up trash, all that good stuff. And that inspired me to go to graduate school and study sort of state society relations in environmental politics. So my first uh, book was a lot about activism and um, how people organize under different political and economic conditions. And I've stayed in touch with a lot of those people and I continue to write on that. But as time went by, I became more and more fascinated with Russia's natural resource economy and how the Soviet organization of forestry and oil and gas and other industries like that kind of transformed after privatization and with the um, arrival of multinational corporations. Mm -hmm. And also the arrival of multinational NGOs and um, global governance initiatives. So I've spent some time looking at how... For example, the Forest Stewardship Council either works or sometimes doesn't really work in Russia. Um, how the fact that a lot of Russian oil and gas companies now have international investors or loans, how that's changed their rhetoric, sometimes mm -hmm. their practices on the ground. So I go to a lot of natural resource dependent communities. Mm -hmm. And then I've also worked on climate in Russia and Russia's climate policy and then how global um, climate treaty negotiations have progressed. So yeah, that's a kind of all, to me it's a very natural progression, but somehow actually I'm in different disciplines of, of political science when I do this different kind of work. I can be in comparative politics, I can be in international relations. To me it's all of a piece, but um, I find actually my the people I'm talking to can vary based on the nature of my research question. How does your um, status as a US citizen affect your research in Russia? Well, I'd say, you know, it's something that I've become more aware of over time, and I wish it had been something I'd been thinking about from the very start. I would say, on the one hand, it's absolutely 
privileging. Mm. And on the other hand, it's increasingly become sort of a drawback. (laughs) (laughs) So I have to say, if you were an American kind of out in the middle of nowhere in the mid-1990s, you were, you know, a hot commodity. You know, Mm. people wanted to have you over for dinner and put you on their radio show a little bit like this. (laughs) And, um, And definitely that kind of exotic status most people hadn't met an American meant that I just knocked on people's doors. I mean, I didn't have a phone book. I didn't, I just was word of mouth and I would say, hello, you know, I'm here to help and be a volunteer. And of course I had so much to learn from them. I'm not sure exactly how much I helped them, but I certainly think we both gained from our kind of conversation. Um, And so at that time I would say, of course, and even, you know, resource wise, like I was there during the worst years of hyperinflation at that time. I mean, I've been back many, many times since then, but the dollar was um, a strong and stable currency, even as Russians saw their life savings evaporate mm-hmm. almost overnight. Mm-hmm. So I was enormously privileged and, and remain quite privileged and always need to be aware of that and how I engage with people and engage with community members and sort of have a humility and a modesty. Now, at the same time, uh, studying oil and gas in particular, it's, as you can imagine, rather a sensitive topic um, for the Russian government, for these communities. And it's not uncommon for me to be, and with that work, I've mostly been going with a team of Russian environmental sociologists. And it's not totally uncommon to become some distant area. And people will notice that I'm a foreigner and then ask and I never deny that I'm American, so I'll, you know, say I'm from the United States, and they'll say, aha, Greenpeace, which is Greenpeace, right, which is their idea that why in the world would you be in the back of beyond um, looking at oil and gas unless you were from Greenpeace? And so um, even, you know, from the time I started this work, there's a sensitivity that you must have an agenda, you must be an activist, and people need to relate with you, relate to you rather cautiously. But still, I think I was able to do a lot of work and, you know, I had, you know, documents explaining what I was doing and, um, you know, we did a lot of really interesting research with oil and gas dependent communities. Now, however, in the wake of Russia's foreign agent law, um, where NGOs can be fined and, and taken to court and given a special category if they are working in the foreign interest, however that gets defined. And with increasing sensitivity about corporate espionage, it actually, I think, is very difficult, would be very difficult for me to reproduce some of the research that I did in the past. So I've had colleagues, um, American colleagues, who've gotten kind of gently kicked out of oil and gas producing regions. So I had a colleague who um, arrived to do some, what she thought was pre-approved research, but was visited by a a member of the FSB and told, would you rather come to our office and spend some time with us or would you rather go back to the airport and get on the next flight to Moscow? So she went back to the airport. And my Russian colleagues, I set up this study with them and they've been replicating it in new regions. And I have said, oh gosh, I would love to join you guys. And they have said, don't, don't, don't. It's hard enough without you. Like if you were here, we probably, no one would speak to us at Mm -hmm. this point. So, so over time, the political conditions change, the sensitivities change. And I mean, your research naturally evolves as well. So I feel really fortunate. I got to do that work in the past. I'm so grateful to the people who generously gave of their time. Um, I'll probably be doing slightly different work in the future. Mm -hmm. Um, but I continue to be 
really interested in all those topics. Yeah. yeah. Um, wait, bring it, you bringing up Greenpeace uh, <laughs> makes us think about like climate activism or just yeah. activism in general. Yeah. So this is sort of like the crux of really what we wanted to talk about today, yeah. which is um, why research versus activism. Like, why? What is what is valuable to you in terms of being a researcher versus mm -hmm. an activist in um, specifically fostering sustainability and what is unique about being like a professor in all of this? Right. That's such a good question. You know, they often joke people who can't do teach, right? <laughs> and I don't think I would be an amazing activist. I, I don't, I'm a little shy about getting up in front of a crowd and speaking passionately. Um, I remember being in a union in grad school and going on strike and just, you know, like I found it so exciting and stressful at the same time. But I've always been fascinated by people who are activists and who do that really hard, difficult work. But the thing that interests me the most is systems. So I'm interested in systems of political power, systems of political influence, systems of resource flow, how some ideas become dominant and other ideas become marginalized. And I'm interested in how those things change over time. So I think the reason I'm so fascinated by activism is because I, like everybody, want to believe and do believe that human beings can change systems. But I think that it's actually really hard and that it doesn't always happen as we would expect or in ways that we might desire. And so I'm interested in how human agency plays a role in changing systems. And I'm mostly because I'm interested in the environment. I'm interested in whether those are economic systems or political decision-making. Um, so I've always studied social movements. And of course, I'm very sympathetic to many of these social movements. I, you know, have been a, a more or less active or passive per participant in some of them. But, um, you know, my role really is as a scholar who tries to help us develop that deeper understanding, looking back in history, looking across countries, looking across issue areas, to develop a rigorous kind of model of, of trying to understand when social movements succeed and when they fail. Um, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that makes me think of the last conversation we had, I think, two weeks ago with Ayana, um, talking about, like, when like if you're not a particularly like outgoing person or like how do you find space to be an activist or like bring your opinions forward and one of the things Ayana talked about was that there are a lot of um, areas in which you're not necessarily being that person like mm -hmm. on the stage um, talking about the issues and there are a lot of people like um, not necessarily like in the background but supporting that effort um, which I thought was really interesting. Yeah, I'm a firm believer that people should go where their energy and their talents take them and that everybody can make a contribution in their own way. And if you're a talented mathematician or you love laboratory science, you might make your contribution in that way. Mm -hmm. If you're an artist, you know, you might develop images that really touch people and move people. You might be a storyteller. You might be a journalist. You know, there's lots of different things that you might do in <laughs> your life. And, and it's, you should go, you know, where you're going to thrive, mm -hmm. right? And, and not everybody is 
going to thrive as an activist, and I think it's wonderful that, that some people do, although, of course, activists are famous for, for burnout, and understandably so. But I think, um, I think that there are lots and lots of ways to move conversations mm -hmm. forward. Yeah. Going back to changing systems, um, so you mentioned this a little bit earlier, but how have your research interests evolved over the years, and have they followed like particular social movements, policy changes, and if so, can you talk a little bit about what the main ones were? Yeah, so it's funny because now as I'm getting kind of older, <laughs> I start to see more of a historical arc to my life, which is disconcerting. <laughs> I realized that there was something really particular about being in my 20s in the 90s. The 1990s were a very strange time that you guys possibly <laughs> could relate to where... The Soviet Union collapsed. There was this rhetoric of sort of, we won the Cold War. Okay, we're going to have this big peace dividend because we're going to spend so little now on the military and nuclear weapons. And so, you know, what should we do together? Like, how should we come together globally to solve our problems now that we're no longer divided? And there were so many amazing transnational social movements of that time, movements against human trafficking, movements against um, landmines, um, conflict diamonds. I mean, so many of the big movements um, that we study now arose in that really, really optimistic era. And I was educated, it kind of pains me to remember a little bit, in this model of comparative politics called the transitions to democracy model. And this... Um, presented itself as a neutral model, but it was actually a highly normative model with full of assumptions that unless somebody is actively, you know, propping up an authoritarian system, the natural tendency toward human society is in a democratic direction, right? And so you just remove the obstacles and everybody will become democratic. And mm -hmm. as we look around the world, we're just all engaged in this big transition to democracy. Mm -hmm. And some of us are moving slowly and some of us are moving quickly. And but we all know where we're going, right? And so my first trips to Russia were very much influenced by this transition to democracy model. Whereas I actually think a much better way to think about this, of course, is transformation. We're always transforming, but we cannot pretend that we understand the end point or, or sort of where we're headed. We have no idea, right? And so when I do this work in Russia, the most interesting thing to me has been to study Russia in a period where a whole bunch of restrictive laws fell away. And it was a critical juncture that kind of blew clean the slate to some degree of legislation and conversation, and anything was possible. And then really since, I would say, at least 2004, there's been a kind of re-authoritarian, you know, political tendency in Russia, right? The restoration of a certain kind of authoritarianism and the closure of political opportunities. So one of the things that's been interesting for me to study is how activists navigate a period where it seems like anything might be possible, and then how they navigate a period where it seems like very little is actually possible. And then disconcertingly, of course, we have seen the degradation of democracy in many places in the West. And so we see kind of a, uh, not identical, but a dynamic that sort of resonates. So the movements that I study, one of the most interesting things has been the political conditions under which they do their work and how that's changed over mm -hmm. time. Where are you right now? What's the, what are the current projects? If you can talk about them. Oh yeah, I mean I have, like, of course, like any good faculty member, way too many current projects and some <laughs> of them seem a little bit stuck and some of them are moving forward. 
So I have a big project with a group of other scholars called the Everyday Activism Project, and it tries. It kind of goes back to my roots. Um, it looks at Eastern Europe and the former Soviet Union and says, okay, we had this really unusual period in the 1990s where donors, Western donors, USAID, the Ford Foundation, the MacArthur Foundation, the National Endowment for Democracy, the International Republican Institute, all these, they flooded the region. And they just wanted to give away money, give away money, give away money, but they had their own ideas about what was the right thing to do, how to organize things, right? And that money evaporated, uh, really around the time of the war in Iraq and Afghanistan. And we're kind of trying to look at this later period and understand that that money was empowering, but it was also really distorting. And what people have been doing since then, now that they have so few resources, but they have new kinds of resources, right? They have social media, they have crowdfunding. So we're looking at a lot at the way new technologies shape <coughs> um, activism. So that's a really, a really fun project. Um, I have another project that compares Russia with other BRICS countries on issues like climate change and corporate social responsibility and deforestation. So that's a great project, too, because you can learn a lot by seeing how Brazilian activists versus Russian activists try to use the Forest Stewardship Council, or how um, the Russian delegation navigates the UN FCCC meetings versus how the Chinese delegation navigates those meetings. Mm -hmm. So that's been a really fascinating project as well. Um, I have another project about activists who've gone into exile. So I said that I maintained a lot of connections with people I volunteered with back in the day. Well, as the political system has gotten increasingly unfavorable to activism in Russia, a number of those people have left. And they're still trying to work on the same issues, but often from Germany or from the U.S. or mm -hmm. from Estonia. And so we have a project looking at how... What does it mean to be displaced but still passionately engaged? And how do you navigate a whole new set of political opportunities and economic opportunities, but when you're estranged from your original mm -hmm. community? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and then a couple things related to the Arctic and some stuff marinating in my brain. <laughs> probably should finish a few things before I start anything new. Um, could you talk about uh, a bit about the... Brunswick-Bowden uh, Climate Council? We have a sustainability implementation yes. committee on campus. Okay. <laughs> and that's a great committee. It is made up of, yeah, facilities people who are just amazing experts in energy and construction. It's made up of some faculty representatives, some student representatives. And it's the committee that's charged kind of with thinking about Bowden's climate action plans and what we've achieved, what we're still working on, what goals we want to set. So by April, we're supposed to come up with the Bowdoin Climate Action Plan for 2030. And so um, as a faculty member, a lot of it I just kind of sit in as an interested party and ask questions. We think about, about new buildings going up. We think about Mills Hall. We think about the new Center for Arctic Studies. We think about um, the future of the steam plant. We talk a lot about the steam plant. <laughs> I know so much more about the steam plant than I ever expected. The electrification of campus heat, which would be really important, you know, to achieving our climate goals. But then we also try to talk about the academic program, 
uh, just programming writ large on campus, the kind of talks we have, the kind of events that we offer to com the community, mm -hmm. um, connections we can make, uh, learning that we can do together. So one initiative that we have underway right now is that we're really interested in bringing in somebody to do a faculty workshop on how people could introduce a couple of courses, maybe one assignment, maybe some section of their syllabus to engage with the question of sustainability or climate or the environment, P faculty who are not appointed in environmental studies or mm -hmm. who historically have not worked in that area. Like, could we make it easy for them and fun for them and interesting for them to kind of think about how they might engage with, you know, the climate crisis or engage with, if you're going to do quantitative work in your class, why not quantitative work on... Bowdoin's energy use, or if we think about renewables in Maine, there are a whole host of issues that have to do with the siting of renewables, or the permitting process, or, um, you know, opportunity cost of land use, right? I, we, I had Pete Didisheim from the Natural Resources Council of Maine in my first year seminar a couple of weeks ago. <laughs> he talked about the targets they've set, which of course he really supports. They're very ambitious, all the new targeting that's come out under Janet Mills. But the acreage that would have to be devoted to wind turbines or solar panels, and what what do we want that acreage to be? Like, do we want it to be our farmland? Yeah. You know, do we want it to be a recreational land? Do we, you know, are there enough brown fields in Maine or kind of wasteland in Maine? Like, could we make some priorities rather than letting it happen willy-nilly. So we're really excited about it. We think there are lots of ways that the academic program can, um, you know, engage with these issues even more broadly than it has in the past. I just love being on that committee. I, I feel like I've learned so much about the regulations and the technical constraints and the opportunities of what a place like Bowdoin can do to try to help us make progress. Mm -hmm. Are there committees like this in Russia? Like, is that in Russia? kind of a thing? I guess that might lead me to, like, a bigger question about American versus Russian environmentalism. But is something like that, like, present? Gosh, um, I've never heard of it. I mean, Russian um, universities tend to be rather top-down mm -hmm. type. Um, we have a, a thing here called faculty-led governance, where the faculty is supposed to be a co-governor of the college along with the president's office and the mm -hmm. deans and the trustees. Um, certainly something like that would never exist in most Russian universities. There mm -hmm. are a couple of kind of newer, there's European University in St. Petersburg. There are a couple of new models where they're trying these things out. I mean, the biggest challenge for Russian environmentalists is they don't have institutional access in mm -hmm. most cases. They don't have a way to shape policy at different levels of government or to get inside important community institutions. Um, so I think that would be a big difference. So for example, if we imagine right now that there's a lot of gridlock in D.C., like not not mm -hmm. a lot. It's not a very uh, interesting <laughs> things are happening. Yeah. I mean, it is. I think we should we shouldn't discount D.C. I think a lot of interesting things are happening there. But but, you know, it's not a really fertile time for environmental policy. But the exciting thing, I think, about a U.S. model is 
so much is happening in cities mm. and states and towns and colleges and businesses. Um, and you can generate a lot of change in those places. Like on a smaller scale. In a smaller scale that can really aggregate in mm -hmm. interesting ways. Mm -hmm. And, you know, not always a smaller scale. If you think about cities, <laughs> I mean, the biggest cities are bigger than states yeah. population-wise, right? And if so if you can change what a city is doing, you know, that's huge. So, um, and I think in Russia this kind of question of political closure remains a really challenging aspect of, of trying to organize. Do you, do you have any thoughts on like the future of environmentalism in both of those places? Like are there trends that you're, you think are going to continue or change? Well, I think anybody interested in activism is very interested in kind of the, the advantages and challenges that arise with new technological platforms, mm -hmm. right? And I'm sure lots of classes in Bowdoin are talking about clicktivism and slacktivism, <laughs> or is it like a substitution? So I had Duray McKesson come to one of my classes a couple of years ago, and he made a really impassioned case that organization building is passe. Like all, if all the effort to have office space and have staff mm. and have salaries and have, you know, a bureaucracy and, you know, that's a lot of investment and time just to keep that running. And if you can have a decentralized network of like-minded groups um, that's not so hierarchical, and you can use social media and other technologies to facilitate that. Hmm. It's more nimble, it's more dynamic, it's more flexible, it's more adaptive. You know, in some ways also, it may be less powerful okay. as well. It's just hard to say. I think the jury is still out. So I think we're all really interested in how technology is going to shape um, shape movements in the future. And I think we're also interested in the way in which you know, corporate power becomes concentrated in particular ways and what people, how people challenge that, that corporate, you know, the thing about your government is at least it's supposed to be democratic, but nobody told you that, you know, <laughs> corporations were supposed to be democratic, right? So it's a different model of trying to, trying to generate. If you're challenging Amazon, for example, that's a different, a different model. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And with a lot of those trends, it's not something that you necessarily see until years down the road yeah. after the fact. Right. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, okay. Um, and quickly going back to the Climate Action Plan for 2030 um, and integrating sustainability and environmentalism into um, classes that aren't necessarily geared towards sustainability or mm -hmm. environmentalism, how have you specifically been able to like incorporate those themes and to the classes you teach. I'm currently in your West European politics class. Tomorrow, Diego, I promise. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like we just did a reading about Germany's um, nuclear energy policy. Um, but ha have you seen like integration within other classes as well? Yeah, I mean, I have a couple of classes that are just straight up on environmental topics, right? So politics of climate change, Arctic politics. I used to teach a class called Comparative Environmental Politics. Um, but I sneak environmental politics into almost all my courses because I actually think that my classes tend to be geared toward puzzling over why countries do things differently, even when they have a shared goal. So they might 
fight terrorism in different ways, or they might try to generate economic growth in different ways, or they might try to um, um, provide health care in different ways. And what can we learn about being curious about that? And I think environmental issues are some of the most interesting and puzzling types of policy that we can reflect on. So I usually, in any class I'm teaching that has a comparative bent, will include some environmental policy because I honestly think it makes for a fabulous case. And I do think a lot of Bowdoin students are interested in those questions, and it's good for them to look at models that aren't the United States. Mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, I've also been lucky <coughs> enough to have community partners who've been able to come in and do interesting things with my classes. So, and sometimes it's environmental straight up, sometimes it's a little related. So I think, Diego, this semester you took the social protest class. Mm -hmm. We had Pavel Sulanziga come, who is a Russian indigenous rights activist who's seeking political asylum in the U.S. but is temporarily living in Maine. But a lot of the things he works on, because he's trying to preserve the opportunity for people to pursue traditional livelihoods of fishing or hunting or reindeer herding or foraging and that involves like control of land and territory mm -hmm. and the right to refuse industrial development and so it really overlaps with environmentalism so so some, sometimes those themes are there even in slightly more subtle ways mm -hmm. um, but I also find that if the faculty member is genuinely curious and engaged and excited about the material, it's, you know, doesn't infect everybody, but it's a little bit infectious and it makes for better <laughs> classes, right? <laughs> so I think that we all, you know, um, we teach a variety of things, but teaching things that you're passionate about is always a good idea. So in the context of your research regarding social movements, um, do you have any thoughts on the climate strike earlier um, in September? So just for a little bit of context, um, there's a strike in, at Bowdoin and then in Portland. According to the Portland Press-Herald, there were about 2,000 people, but then on a larger scale, kind of across um, cities in the U.S. and I think beyond. Um, mm -hmm. There were a lot of strikes. So. Yeah, it was a worldwide effort. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I was at the climate strike, and I was really impressed, you know, at mm. the people organized and the people who spoke, and I thought it was really um, well done. Um so kudos to the people who organized it. I mean, what I know more about, weirdly, is the international, you know, <laughs> version of it. So I've been following uh, Greta Thunberg for, you know, several years now, since she first started speaking in front of European parliaments mm -hmm. and at the EU parliament and, you know, started her climate strike in Sweden. And it, it spread initially around um, Europe as the Fridays for the Future or the School Strike for Climate. Um, and it's been really fascinating to see that movement spread. Um, and I think, you know, it's always hard to analyze a moment you're living in, right? I'm so deeply curious about the moments I'm living through, but if I'm not studying them rigorously with some kind of research design, I just have my own impressions. I mean, I think that you often need complementary forces simultaneously to get things done. So there's a theory in social movement literature that says that moderate movements that are working inside, you know, policymaking institutions actually often benefit from having noisier, uh, more disruptive movements going on simultaneously. 
right? So this is called the radical flank effect, actually. <laughs> There's a term for it. And it's funny because we had this guy, I don't know if you guys went, but Danny Richter, Keisha actually, Payson invited him to campus from the Citizens Climate Lobby. And he is trying to put this, push these bipartisan carbon pricing bills through the legislature in D.C. And he doesn't have anything to do with Sunrise, and he doesn't have anything to do. But I asked him about it, and he sort of... Um, you know, said that anything that gets people excited and passionate and curious and activates people is helpful to him. But I think historically you can look back and see a lot of movements where having a, a more disruptive wing actually helped us make um, progress. And I think, you know, the climate issue is uniquely painful in some ways in the sense that there's always this thing we say with social movements, which is, I think, so flippant and kind of exhausting, which is like, well, the next generation will save us, <laughs> right? I'm sure you guys are particularly maybe tired of hearing something like that. Well, you know, here you are, you're still in a position of power. Why don't you do something now, <laughs> right? And so the okay boomer and like, okay <laughs> Karen or whatever. Yeah. Although Karen is wrong, right? It shouldn't be Karen. It's a terrible, I don't know if you guys know this, is okay boomers to refer to yeah. the baby boomers, mm -hmm. but now there's supposed to be one to refer to my generation, Gen X, <laughs> and I think they're trying, okay, Karen, but Karen mm. is not, you need Jennifer or something <laughs> like that. Like, Jennifer really yeah. is. <laughs> okay, Jennifer. We were all Jennifers. I like went to school with five Jennifers. Um, but I do think there's something uniquely difficult about the climate issue in that it, it really does have differential generational effects. Mm -hmm. It really does. Mm -hmm. And so for this group of people to to rise up at an early phase in their life and, and to sort of demand that something be done is entirely logical and sensible um, and appropriate. And the, the thing that I really, that's interesting to me also a little bit as a scholar, and I have to give a shout out here to somebody named Allison Gross, who graduated like four years ago, who's <laughs> in grad school at the University of Michigan. Allison, she was involved in BCA from early days when it first got started, and she actually wrote her Gov Honors Project on Sunrise. And she came to me, and this was when Sunrise was like a gleam in somebody's eye, and she's like, I want to write on this Sunrise, and I was like, what is that? <laughs> like, I didn't know what it was. So a lot of what I know about Sunrise, I know from working with her on her Honors Project, but I do think that this effort to identify co-benefits... <clears throat> Things like the Green New Deal, things like the fact that, like, we have so many problems, but they're interrelated, and many of them can be solved together. There are ways we can think about infrastructure, and we can think about employment, and we can think about marginalized communities, and we can think about, you know, a broader idea of social justice and climate justice together. Because, you know, the the environmental movement in the U.S. has a problem. It's been upper middle class and white mm -hmm. for long, 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 long time. And if the climate movement stopped there, I think it would experience some of the same issues that the environmental movement has historically. So I'm really yeah. interested in this idea of um, a broader definition of justice and the search for like mutually beneficial mm. um, ideas. Mm -hmm. yeah. Do you see the, the environmental movement, specifically the take that Sunrise is taking right now, as being the that radical flank? Or is it sort of in your eyes, like, and again, always tough to tell yeah. at the present moment, do you view it as, like, more of a moderate movement that might be able to benefit from more radical? I mean, you know, radical is a weird word, right? How do we even define it? I mean, usually, if you're a social movement, you can choose to 
you can work inside established institutions and use institutionalized tactics, or you can work outside. And if you work outside, you're a little bit more on the radical spectrum already. I mean, certainly, we're not talking about weather underground. You know, we're not talking about, like, kind of the violent radicalism, you know, that was part of the um, the kind of disintegration, fragmentation of the movements of the 1960s. Mm. But I think, relatively speaking, they are right now serving the role. I mean, if you're going to go and, you know, it's it's the tactics, right? And it, if you're going to go and sit in somebody's Senate office, right, and, and not leave until they see you, right, that's very different than what, like, Danny Richter's group Citizen Climate Action is doing where they make an appointment <laughs> and they go in with a binder, right? Um but I think I think strikes I are a really historically really important tool in the toolbox of social movements, and they're always uncomfortable for the people who are, you know, near them and around them, and they're uncomfortable for the people who run institutions, and they can be frustrating for people who don't sympathize. But I think it is an important um, an important activity to generating political and social change. Yeah, mm. and how do you see the efficacy of like? leaderless movements as as they've sort of like arisen sunrise sort of claims to be one right. um but then you see the emergence of these pop political figures like greta thunberg we, we were just right. talking about and they're not necessarily claiming to be like the leader of you know the environmental movement or whatever but mm -hmm. how do you see like the effectiveness of this leaderless movement that is a great question i mean historically we've invested so much into leaders, right? And, um, you know, to the benefit of movements and sometimes to the drawbacks, like somebody who's uniquely inspiring, who's capable of giving a speech, who kind of comes to symbolize everything that we're trying to achieve, who's kind of a North Star, a moral compass, who sort of determines where to go and how to go, and who people can rally around. Um, at the same time, if that leader turns out to have feet of clay or, you know, I'm going to roll out the metaphors here, skeletons in the closet or all sorts of stuff, right, that gets to be problematic. And if that leader is in some way disabled or removed from the movement through violent means or nonviolent means, that can be a huge problem. So theoretically, you know, leaderless movements should be in some ways maybe more resilient um, at the same time, you know, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. So if you look at, um, this is not a climate movement per se, but if you look at the Gilets Jaunes, the Yellow Vest in France, right, they're like a classic leaderless, leaderless movement. But eventually the media wanted to talk to somebody and they wanted to get somebody's plan and they wanted, what are your goals? And different people popped up as like, well, okay, I'll speak to you. But as soon as they did, everybody else in the movement was like, bah, you don't speak for us and mm. discredited. And you saw this a little bit too with Occupy Wall Street. And I just don't know. I mean, I think leaderless movements can definitely move the conversation. I think they can change our vocabulary. They can enlarge our horizons. At some point, though, I do think you need to sit down and make a plan and engage with sort of other organizations that do have leaders or existing leaders of organizations. And so um, I think that's a tricky moment of transition for a lot of social movements. It's hard for them to make it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's an interesting time we're living in, I think. For sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so kind of bring our conversation back to sustainability and need to close this out. Um, 
what can an individual do when it comes to like sustainable habits and like trying to move towards a more equitable world like where does the power really rely like the power to mm -hmm. make change individual versus collective well i mean i think logically it's both and yeah. right i mean i think i think a way for us to live um hap i mean i think if you are concerned about the climate and sustainability and the environment a way for you to find personal satisfaction and to you know feel good about your life is of course to make what the individual changes that you can you know and, and so I, I absolutely support the things that people are doing in their own lives to change their transportation and their heat and where they put their money and the products that they buy and I think all that's great it makes a lot of sense but I think at the end of the day the choices that we have of what our transportation options are and what our heating options are and what, what we can buy are limited and they're limited by systems. And I think the only way to change those systems is through some form of collective action. And it can be quiet and it can be noisy and it can be expert and it can be citizen-based. But I think if you you know, have to fly a lot for work and you feel bad about it and you buy carbon offsets. Okay, that's not a bad compromise right now, but the reality is, you know, a lot of people, certainly experts think there should be a tax on carbon and that would drive technological change. It would drive corporate change. It would drive individual change much in a much greater way mm. than um, our own kind of moral compasses do, right? Mm -hmm. And that that's really ultimately what we need. So I was telling Diego that in a couple of my classes, I used to sign this article called Plant a Tree, Ride a Bike, Change the World, question mark, the individualization of the environmental movement. And I think by overemphasizing individual action, not, not, we shouldn't diminish it, but by overemphasizing it, making it the end all be all, we then don't get to ask, but why, what is the electricity mix in my state? And what are my public transportation options? And where, where does my food come from? And, you know, how am I being represented globally? And those are all things that have to happen when we kind of act together. Mm -hmm. So definitely both and, but, you know, you're not going to be surprised. I'm a political scientist. It's all about politics back <laughs> in the end. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for your wonderful answers. We've got a lot to think about and a lot to look forward to in watching the Sunrise Movement unfold. Absolutely. I think they've got their next strike December 6th. Right. And one after Earth Day, they've got a whole lineup of events. Um, so we'll be closely watching all of them. But anyways, thank you so much. Yeah. We appreciate you spending time with us. Thanks for having me. Thanks for your podcast. That's great. <laughs> yeah. Throughout the 2019-2020 academic year, we will be broadcasting on Brunswick's own radio station, WBOR 91.1, Mondays from 3 to 4 p.m. Tune in next week for our incredible Birds, Birding, and Bird People episode, Two Bowden Students, Ben Murtha of Class of 2021, and James O'Shea of Class of 2020. The two are a hilarious combination of taxonomic knowledge, environmental consciousness, and constant bird banter. 
Each episode featuring live interviews with Brunswick and Bowdoin community members will be available after the show on the sustainability website at bowdoin.edu slash sustainability under the green tea tab. There you can also find show notes and descriptions of past episodes. If you'd like to share any stories or thoughts, we'd love to hear from you. Please email Marie at mscaspar, that's M-S-C-A-S-P-A-R, at bowdoin.edu to get in touch. The music you heard in this episode is courtesy of Colby Santana of The Sustainers, who we interview in the last episode of Season 1. Thanks, Thanks for, for listening. listening.